Well, if you do have a Bible this morning, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you can just uh, slip your hand up in the air. One of our ushers will bring one to you. You can borrow that and even take it home with you if you like, if you don't want to have one at home. I've been preaching through the book of Luke. We're now in Luke 22. We'll be reading verses 39 to 46. Luke 22, starting in verse 39. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for another morning of life that you have given to us. Believe, Father, that you are the sustainer of all life. You send forth your spirit and there's life. Lord, we also know that the scriptures say you turn your face and we pass away and return to the dust. Lord, you the, the, the giver of life, the sustainer of life. And uh, Father, physical life and, and spiritual life. Father, we believe that uh, in Christ Jesus you, you can raise us from the dead spiritually. Give us life. And Father, we believe that you, 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 you do that through your word, that you do bring us from death to life spiritually through your word, and then once we've brought to life, been brought to life spiritually, you sustain us through your word. So Lord, we just ask right now that as we meditate on this portion of your scripture, we pray, Father, that you would bless it. And you would cause those who might be dead spiritually now to, to be raised to life spiritually. And those who have been raised to life spiritually would be, would be edified, nourished, matured, sanctified uh, through this portion of your word. We thank you for it, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Amen. As, uh, as, as human beings, when, when we go through some dark and difficult time in our lives, we go through some sort of a time of intense anguish or despair, we, we often say that we are experiencing a dark night of the soul. That expression came from a 16th century priest, St. John of the Cross. He used the phrase a little differently than we do. Most people now simply use the phrase dark night of the soul to refer to some dark and difficult season in their life. You, you lose a spouse to cancer maybe. Or you lose a best friend in a car wreck. Car wreck. Or maybe you just feel for seemingly no reason at all like you're just drowning in depression. 
just this deep feeling of despair for some unknown reason, a dark night of the soul. Just so much pain in that season of your life that you feel like your soul is shrouded in darkness. You, you can't seem to see any light whatsoever in your life. It might seem at times like it's even difficult to breathe. And some of us may have gone through something like that before. And if you have, or if you are maybe right now going through something like that, well, Jesus understands. Because Jesus himself went through the sort of dark night of the soul right here. The darker night of the soul than any of us will ever experience. And man, this thing here, this situation, this thing rocked Jesus to some degree. You know, it's easy to read over this story and not really grasp the emotion here. Not, not really grasp the deep anguish that Jesus felt here. Jesus is God, and, and I think we, we, we think, well, how much could God really have suffered here? But Jesus is also human, and as a man, Jesus suffered tremendously here. All kinds of deep and dark human emotions. Not, not sinful emotions, but definitely very deep and dark human emotions here for Jesus. And it is here in this passage where we are taken like never before into the very heart of Jesus. Taken into some of the deepest places in his heart. Theologians in the past, they said that we are taken here in this passage into the sanctum sanctorum. The holy of holies. In the heart of Jesus, we encounter here some of the deepest mysteries of the God-man. And we can see here in this passage, I believe, several distinct things in the heart of Jesus. And the first thing we see here, I believe, is submission. In the passage before this, Jesus and his original disciples, they finished a, a Passover feast in Jerusalem. And Luke says now, verse 39, that Jesus now went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Probably late at night now, and they head out of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, where Jesus and his disciples had spent the night every night of the past week. And the books of Mark and John tell us that Jesus and his disciples now went to a garden on the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. John 18.2 says that Jesus and his disciples had met often in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's probably spent quite a bit of time there together over the past three years or so. It was maybe some type of enclosed garden. It may have been a privately owned garden and they had permission to go there. We don't know. The name Gethsemane means oil press, so it may have been an olive grove. A garden of olive trees. I did pull up a couple pictures of olive groves for you, just to give you a sense of what they might have been in here. Uh, olive trees are always big and wide, with kind of the gnarled, um, the gnarled base there. Uh, that's one picture. We have one more here. 
So they could have been in something like that, thank you. Uh, it would have just been much, much darker. This was, uh, this was the dead of the night here that they were in this olive garden. Jesus and his disciples had probably enjoyed that garden quite a bit. Uh, talking together in that garden, laughing together there, just being together. Most likely some pretty good memories for Jesus and his disciples there. When Molly and I were first uh, engaged and, and later married, we would occasionally go to the Tyler Rose Garden in Tyler, Texas, where we were living at the time. Just this garden that was packed with amazing roses. And uh, I personally have really good memories from that garden just because I had an opportunity to be with the woman I love there, just walking and talking, uh, picnics in that garden, just being with Molly. That, that garden still to this day holds pretty good memories for me. And that may have been the Garden of Gethsemane to Jesus and his disciples holding some pretty good memories for these men but this garden will now become the setting for Jesus's dark night of the soul and also the setting for his betrayal which will happen in the very next passage Jesus only has 11 of his disciples his original uh, 12 disciples with him here on this occasion. Judas Judas made a pact earlier in this chapter with the Jewish religious leaders to betray Jesus to them. And it is likely that it, at this point in time right here, Judas is already gathering with what the book of John says was a band of soldiers and officers carrying lanterns, torches, and weapons. And John 18.2 says that Judas knows where this garden is. And in just a few minutes now, Judas will be leading this band of men to this garden to betray Christ. And Luke says in verse 40 that after arriving at this garden here, Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. That you may not enter into testing or trial." This story was also recorded in the books of Matthew and Mark, and those accounts are longer than Luke's. Uh, They both say that Jesus told some of his disciples to wait in one area of the garden and pray, and Jesus then took Peter, James, and John to another area of the garden, told them to pray, and then Jesus went off to pray. But Luke has just shortened it and condensed everything, and Luke has Jesus here just saying to his disciples, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And prayer is... It's an essential spiritual discipline for every disciple of Jesus. If if you are here today and and, and you do trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you do seek to follow Jesus every day of your life, Jesus wants you to pray. God tells us multiple times in the Bible to pray. Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer. Ephesians 6.18, pray at all all times. Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. God tells us all over the word to pray. And regular prayer in a disciple's life, regular prayer is a mark of humility. It's an indication that you recognize your weakness as a disciple. You recognize your constant need for God to help you and to to protect you and keep you. Regular prayer is a sign of your dependence on God. An indication that you are truly leaning hard on God for everything in your life. 
And on the flip side, a lack of prayer in a disciple's life is almost always a sign of pride. Prayerlessness is almost always a sign of sinful self-dependence. It's a sign in your life that you think you already have for the most part what it takes to make it through your day. You have in yourself the necessary strength and wisdom and ability and you don't really need God to help you. Prayerlessness is almost always a sign that you, to a large degree, are really trusting in yourself in this life. And we as disciples have to be weaned away from that. God wants to break the pride in our hearts and lives and lead us into a humble, dependent prayer life. Jesus wants His disciples to pray regularly. A a consistent, humble, dependent, leaning on God for everything. And, And Jesus gives us in the Bible several things that He wants us to pray about regularly. And one of those things is temptation, testing, or or trial. And listen, Jesus, he doesn't just want us to pray about temptation when we are actually in the temptation, when we are actually being tested or tried. Yes, pray at that time. Call out to God for help. The second you feel yourself being tempted to sin in some particular way. But Jesus doesn't just want us as disciples to pray about temptation when we're actually in temptation. No, Jesus also wants us to pray about temptation before we ever enter it. And Jesus teaches us that in the Lord's Prayer. Luke 11, these disciples right here, Luke 11, they ask Jesus, teach us how to pray. Every disciple needs Jesus to teach them how to pray. They ask him, teach us how to pray. He gives them the Lord's Prayer, a sort of template of things they should pray about. And one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer says this, Luke eleven four, Father, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. It's the same type of thing Jesus says right here to his disciples. Pray, disciples, that you may not enter into temptation. And you don't just pray as a disciple when you're in temptation. You ask God to keep you from temptation on a daily basis. Before God, help me today, Lord. Don't let me end up in a temptation today, Lord. Don't let me be tested and tried today, Lord. Keep me from temptation today, Father. But if, Father, you have ordained that I would pass through some sort of temptation today, then, Father, please support me and sustain me in that temptation. And man, a disciple who prays like that before and in a temptation is demonstrating a very humble dependence on God. And that disciple will be well, very well guarded by God against temptation. And man, Jesus, he wants these disciples here to be very well guarded at this particular time against temptation. He wants them to be ready and guarded against a very particular temptation, a testing or trial. 
In the passage right before this, Jesus told, that his, told his disciples that Satan was going to sift them like wheat. Satan was going to tempt them. He was going to try them. He was going to test them. Jesus just told his disciples that. And that temptation that he was talking about, that sifting, is almost here. In just a couple seconds now, Jesus will be betrayed. He'll be arrested. He'll be tried. He'll be killed. And during that time, Satan will sift these men violently. Tempt them, test them, try them. Trying to get them to fall. Trying to get them to to run in fear. Trying to get them to deny Jesus. And hopefully, even walk away from Jesus for good. Now they won't ultimately walk away from Jesus for good. Because in the previous passage, Jesus said, I have prayed for you. So they won't walk away ultimately for good. But listen, to a certain degree, these disciples in this satanic sifting that's coming, in this temptation, these disciples will fall. They will run in fear. They will cower in confusion. Peter will deny Jesus for a time. They will fall to some degree in this temptation and one of the reasons will be a lack of prayer. Jesus tells them to pray here. Be alert, disciples. Watch and pray in your lives lest you enter into a temptation, lest you fall in that temptation. But they don't pray. Matthew and Mark say that Jesus returned to his disciples several times here in the garden and found them sleeping every time. And Luke says down in verse 46 that when Jesus found them like that, he said, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But they don't do it. They fail to pray here. And their lack of prayer will cause them to stumble in temptation. Jesus sees it's coming. He knows it's coming. He knows they're going to fall because he knows they're not going to pray. One of the reasons they will fall. I will say some of you, I think, have probably stumbled in the same temptation a thousand times. And I will say that probably one of the reasons is a lack of prayer. You may pray in that temptation. Father, help me. I'm being tempted right now. But I think probably in your life, there's a general lack of prayer before the temptation. And you're not praying that God would keep you out of temptation. A general lack of prayer in your life. And see, that general lack of prayer in your life is a symptom of pride in your life. You think you can handle it. You think you can make it on your own. And the Bible says pride always comes before a fall. Wherever there is a lack of prayer in the disciples of Jesus, in particular a lack of prayer about temptation, you will see those disciples falling in temptation. Fighting temptation takes a a humble spirit on your knees, praying about things, praying about temptation regularly. An alert, wakeful spirit before God. The disciples, man, they don't pray here. 
But one person who does pray here is Christ. You look at verse 41, Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. Jesus pulls away from his disciples here. We don't know how far. I guess it depends on how good your arm strength is, a stone's throw away. For Pastor Thomas, that'd be about five or ten feet. Uh, yeah, Jesus right here. Uh, might have been a little further than that for most. Uh, so 40 to 50 feet, we don't know, or 40 to 50 yards, we don't know. Disciples have pulled away or Jesus has pulled away from his disciples here in this dark garden. Amen. the garden has now become for Jesus a very dark and lonely place. Maybe even a satanic place. In Luke 4, Satan approached Jesus directly in the wilderness and tempted him severely. And it is possible that Satan approached again here in the garden, directly tempted and tormented him. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, a portrayal of the suffering and death of Jesus, in the opening scene, Jesus is in the garden, and a very satanic-looking figure is with him there in the garden, robed, whispering to him, tormenting him, taunting him, trying to keep him from going to the cross. And it is possible that this garden had become a very satanic place for Christ. That he did hear the taunts and temptations of Satan trying to keep him from dying on the cross. And Luke says here that Jesus knelt and prayed. You know, we read over that statement and nothing there really sounds that unusual to hear of someone praying while kneeling. It was highly unusual for people back then to pray while kneeling. People stood when they prayed, their eyes up to heaven, but Jesus kneels. Mark 14 says he fell to the ground. Mark 26 says he fell on his face. So just picture Jesus slumping to his knees, his face on the ground, beginning to cry out to his Father in heaven. Here in the book of Luke, we've seen Jesus pray many different occasions. He, he has prayed before every significant event in his life, and here he is praying once again. What does he pray? You look at verse 42 again. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and the cup, this, this cup that Jesus was praying about here, this cup was his approaching suffering and death. The cup in Jesus' day was often used as a metaphor for suffering and death. And that's because one of the most popular ways of assassinating someone back then was to poison their cup. <laughs> Kings actually had tasters who would drink from the cup before them just in case there was poison in the cup. The Roman emperor Claudius was actually killed by poison because his taster failed to do his job. The cup in Jesus' day, it was used often as a metaphor for suffering and death. And that's what Jesus is praying about here. Father, I see this, this cup of suffering and death coming my way tomorrow. Father, if you're willing, 
Please take this cup from me. And man, when you step back and you consider what Jesus just said right there, that is an absolutely mind-blowing statement. All through the book of Luke, Jesus has been saying that he came to die. He knows he must die. And Jesus is God who ordained that he would die. And yet here, as the God-man, as God in human flesh, he now sees this cup coming his way. And there is something inside of Jesus that does not want to die. And what is it? What is this thing inside of Jesus that didn't want to die? Well, to some degree, I think that's just called human nature. Jesus, during his time on earth, he was not just some sort of pseudo-human. He didn't just seem to, he didn't just appear to be human. No, Jesus was fully human. Fully God, yes, but also fully man. And deep in his human nature here on earth, just like you and me, Jesus possessed this very natural human instinct to preserve his own life. The humanity of Jesus recoiled very naturally away from death. The humanity of Jesus wanted to retreat from death, just like our humanity does. His natural inborn preference as a human being was to live. And we see the humanity of Jesus on full display right there in the garden. Take this cup from me. Father, take it. Take this cup from me. I don't want to die. Man, it's amazing. And yet we, we see something else in Jesus here. We also see here a submission to his Father's will. Take this cup from me, Father. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. And Jesus, there he is, the eternal Son of God, now in human flesh, submitting to his Father's will, something he had done from all eternity. Eternal Son of God, he had existed from all eternity. And from all eternity, the eternal Son of God had always submitted to his Father's will in everything. And now here as a man, He's doing it again, submitting to his Father's will. But man, you know what's crazy about what's taking place here. You really stop and think about what's going on here. I think what we really see here in this garden, what we really see inside of Jesus here is a battle of the wills. A battle of two distinct wills in Jesus. Jesus is both God and man, one person in two natures, fully God and fully man. And the orthodox teaching of the Christian church ever since the Council of Constantinople in AD 680 is that Jesus, as the God-man, has both a divine and a human will. As God, 
Jesus has the exact same will as his father. Because the father and the son are one. So as God, here in the garden, Jesus' will is the same as his father's, which is for him to die. But as a man here in the garden, Jesus also has a human will. A human will that very naturally does not want to die. And theologians have said for centuries that here in the garden we see in Jesus a sort of battle of the wills. His human will in some way wrestling with his divine will. We see the human will of Jesus here wrestling with his father's will. Not sinfully, but a legitimate wrestling here. There is some sort of legitimate conflict here in Jesus between my will and thy will. Donald, Donald McLeod, in his amazing book, The Person of the Christ, uh, I, I was assigned to read it in seminary, loved it. We come home and read lots of it, parts of it to Molly. Um, and the one thing I love about Donald McLeod in that book, The Person of the Christ, is the way he describes the humanity of Jesus. Like I have never heard before. So good. And Donald McLeod says about this Garden of Gethsemane passage, he says this, quote, At a very basic level, Jesus does not want this cup. His whole nature shrinks from it. And as he speaks to his father, he is acutely aware here that there are two wills and two ways. There is my will and there is thy will. And Jesus did not find it easy to be reconciled to the Father's will. It literally terrified him. It was eerie. It was overwhelming. It was uncanny. And Jesus' victory in the garden, McLeod says, Jesus' victory in the garden came from choosing the Father's will rather than and even over against his own will. End quote. Now listen, we will never know for sure exactly what took place in the person of Jesus here on this night. We, we will never know for sure. Some of what I've already said is speculation. We are gazing here in this passage into some of the deepest mysteries of the incarnation, the, the God-man. Mysteries we will never probably understand. But, but I think one, one thing is clear here in the garden. Jesus, he, he, he was not just experiencing here an external battle with Satan. No, Jesus was also experiencing here some sort of internal battle in his own being. My will, thy will, my will, thy will. My will, thy will. And Jesus submits to his Father's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. He chose, chose, submitted to his Father's will. It's one thing we can see here in the heart of Jesus, submission. The second thing we can see here is agony. You look at verse 43 again. And there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony. 
he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Listen. If we walk away from this passage and we think that this, that this garden trial here was somehow easy for Jesus because he is God, then we have not yet caught the point of this passage. Because this right here was a legitimate war for Christ. Alone in the dark, his human friends sleeping in his time of need, Battling externally with Satan, battling internally somehow in his own being, straining here to submit to his Father's will. Jesus was in some serious turmoil here, and it is evident from the way the gospel writers write about it. Luke says here that an angel of heaven came and strengthened him. It's actually the second time in the book of Luke that has happened. When Jesus battled Satan back in the desert, Luke 4... Matthew 4 says about that experience that angels came and ministered to him. You could meditate on that for six months. Jesus, God in human flesh, because of his humanity, because of his human weakness, his human frailty, he for some reason needed angels to come and minister to him. And he somehow needs it here again. An angel comes to strengthen Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And being strengthened by this angel, Jesus then prayed even more earnestly, Luke says. More fervently or intensely. And praying the exact same thing. Matthew and Mark say Jesus prayed the same thing three different times here. Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Three times, over and over and over again, praying before his father, over and over again, lifting it up to him. Matthew 26 that Jesus says that Jesus right here was very sorrowful, sad or grieving. Sorrowful, Jesus says, even to the point of death. I could die from sorrow right now. Mark 14 says Jesus right here, he was greatly distressed and troubled. Donald McLeod says that first Greek word right there, translated as greatly distressed. He says it's a word that describes someone in the grip of a shuddering horror. And he says that second Greek word there, translated as troubled, is a word that describes a confused, restless, half-distracted state produced by physical derangement or mental distress. And Luke, he just says Jesus was in agony. Agonia is the Greek word. It's a word that refers to the bitter striving of a fierce conflict. <laughs> Amen. Luke says that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Not necessarily saying there that his sweat actually became blood. Luke says there that his sweat became like blood. So Luke might have just been saying there that Jesus was sweating profusely here in the garden. 
But it is also possible that Luke was saying there that his sweat actually became blood. Luke is a physician, remember. And there is a medical condition called hematohydrosis. Where, where people, when they are under extreme stress, the capillaries around their sweat glands can burst and they can actually sweat blood and even cry bloody tears. It is very possible that Jesus really was sweating bloodier. You just picture it if that's true. A bloody sweat dripping from his hair, his face, his beard, drenching his clothes here in this garden that he probably loved. Man, it, it, whatever was happening there, whether Jesus was sweating profusely or, or actually sweating blood here, one thing is clear, I think. Jesus, the God-man, was in some serious distress here. That we will never fully understand. Anguish. Suffering. Turmoil. Agony. A very dark night of the soul. For Jesus Christ. As he sees this cup of suffering and death heading his way. And you, know, you look at this passage you have to ask why. Why? Why all the anguish? Why, why the agony with Jesus here as he sees this cup of suffering and death heading his way? Why, why all the distress? I mean, lots of people in this world have faced suffering and death with almost no anguish or agony, almost no distress whatsoever. Raymond Brown, in his book, The Death of the Messiah, he tells the story of Joachim Murat, the king of Naples under Napoleon, Murat was captured and later executed. And while they were preparing to execute him, the sergeant of the firing squad offered Murat a cloth for his eyes. He said, no, I don't want it. I'm going to die with my eyes open. He said, I'd like to die standing up and not sitting in a chair. Murat then told the sergeant that he had commanded many battles in his life, and if it would be okay, he would like to give the word of command one last time, and the sergeant agreed. So Murat commanded the soldiers to line up in front of him, about 10 feet away. He told them to prepare their rifles. He gave a little smile and said, said, aim at the heart, save the face. And then he raised his arm and said, fire. Stared death square in the face without flinching a muscle. No, no, no observable anguish, agony, nothing like that. And you know, many other people in this world have done the same. And yet, man, we see Jesus, your God in human flesh in great distress Great agony, sweating blood here maybe as he stares death in the face. And why? Well, here's why. Because this cup that was heading Jesus' way wasn't just a cup of suffering and death. It was a cup of wrath. It was a cup that was filled to the very brim with his Father's fury against the sin of the world. You know, the Old Testament prophets, 
in the Bible. They talk a lot about a cup of wrath. Talk a lot about this, this cup of wrath that's filled with the wrath of God. And, and that cup is filled with the wrath of God because of sin. Because of our sin. The Bible says we are all sinners. We've all rebelled against God in many ways in our lives. God is a holy God. And as a holy God, he absolutely hates sin. God has a, a holy abhorrence for our sin. He loathes it, detests it, abominates our sin. And here's the thing, God is not just a holy God who hates sin. No, the Bible says that God is also a just God. And as a just God, he will punish sin. You know, every sin you've ever committed in your life will be punished by God. It, it will be punished by God. He's a just God. If he didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't be a God of justice. He, he doesn't just overlook sin. I think a lot of people think that. Oh yeah, I'm a big sinner, but God's a God of love. He'll, he'll work out. He, he can't. He, he does not do that. He does not just overlook sin. He must and he will punish all sin. All of your sin will be punished. And man, it is, it is the wrath of God that will ultimately punish our sin. The wrath of God. The Bible says that in our natural born state, because of our sin, we live under the wrath of God. It's like that cup is right over our head in our natural born state. Ephesians chapter 2 says in our natural born state, we are children of God's wrath. And if we are still under God's wrath when we die, the Bible says that God's wrath will then be poured out on us in full force. We will then drink to the dregs the cup of God's wrath for our sin. We will drink every last drop of the fury of God for our sin in an eternal hell. As Jesus spoke about multiple times in the Bible. <laughs> but man, the infinitely good news of the Bible is that God is also a God of mercy. And even though He's a holy God who hates sin and a just God who will punish sin, because He's also merciful and loving and kind, He sent His own Son to drink our cup of wrath. That's what Jesus came to do. This, 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 Jesus came into the world to take upon himself the sin of the world and then to absorb on the cross the full punishment for that sin, the wrath and fury that we deserve. Jesus came to drink our cup of wrath. This child of God, the one and only true son of God, became a child of wrath on the cross in order that every child of wrath who would turn away from sin and trust in Him might become a child of God. Jesus, he, He's not in great distress and agony here. His sweat like drops of blood just because of suffering and death. 
but because of the wrath of God that he will soon embrace on the cross for the sin of every single person who would ever trust in him throughout the history of the world. This being who had never touched sin his entire life, never committed sin, never thought a sinful thought, will soon take the sins of all those people upon himself and the punishment, the wrath that goes with those sins. And that terrifies Christ here. Not in a sinful way, but there's something there. John Calvin once said, quote, his horror, his horror was not at death itself, but because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed, that pressed him down here with their enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. End quote. In the book of Genesis at the start of the Bible, Adam, in a garden called Eden, faced a choice to obey or disobey. If he obeyed, he'd be rewarded with life. If he disobeyed, he would be rewarded with wrath. And Adam disobeyed and received wrath along with the entire human race. But now Jesus, the last Adam, as Paul calls him in 1 Corinthians 15, the last Adam now walks into a very different garden called Gethsemane. Much better Adam coming to succeed where the first Adam had failed, coming to fix what the first Adam had broken. This last Adam here, he also had a choice. To obey or disobey. But this is a drastically different situation here. Because if he obeys, he won't receive life but wrath. He'll receive our wrath. And in great agony, he chooses to obey and takes our wrath. The first Adam in the Garden of Eden said, My will, not yours. Gave us all wrath. And now the last Adam in the Garden of Gethsemane says, Not my will, but yours. And he takes our wrath. Two gardens, two Adams. The first Adam disobeyed and gave wrath. The second Adam now obeys and takes wrath. And the only thing you have to do now to have your wrath removed by Christ, the last Adam, is turn away from your sin and cling to Christ in faith. And the second you do that, you're forgiven. And your wrath is gone forever. God forever, no longer living under the cup of God's wrath because Jesus drank it for you to the dregs. Submission, agony. The final thing very briefly we can see in the heart of Jesus here 
It's love. It's love. Listen, (laughs) you know, Luke doesn't show us this grueling scene here in Gethsemane just to cause us to pity Jesus. He doesn't show it to us here just just to teach us about the humanity of Jesus. No, I think Luke probably gives us a window into this grueling scene here so that we can understand just a little bit better the infinite love of Jesus. So we can understand here just a little bit better the infinite love of God for us as sinners. Man, Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And listen, Christ didn't just die for us. No, Christ agonized in death for us. An infinitely traumatic experience for him. Grueling in every way for Christ. Bloody sweat to die for sinners. That is love. That is the love of God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, you see the love of God, the love of Christ for sinners on full display. And please listen to me. If you have received the love of Christ in your life simply by clinging to Christ in faith, if you have received the love of Christ, guess what? Jesus will never stop loving you. Never. Ever. 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 That is the message, I think, of Gethsemane. If Jesus went through this for you in love while you were yet a sinner, while you were still a child of his father's wrath, if he went through this for you and loved you this much when you were like that, who will ever separate you from the love of Christ now that you're a child of God? Romans chapter 8. Who, who can separate you? Nobody. What can separate you? nothing. He loves you. That's the message of Gethsemane. Agony, submission, but deep, deep, infinite love. Receive his love and faith and rest in his love forever. Father, we thank you. Your word is good for us, washes us, cleanses us, Lord. Father, we just acknowledge that there's a lot about this passage we don't get. We, 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 just, we just don't understand it, Lord. We'll never understand it. We can't understand it. And yet, Lord, I know um, a lot of us have just kind of walked past that passage without really feeling the weight of it. And Lord, I just ask you to drive it deep in our hearts that we could in some way comprehend something that's incomprehensible. We could some way comprehend the agony, the submission there of Christ. That we could somehow comprehend And know the unknowable love of Christ. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the love we have forever in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.